I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere. You know, the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. It's Brad King. You are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. Today we're very happy to have Andrew Nalen, who's actually a former student of mine. Wrote on the Invictus Riders Project, which is a yearly project I run with some of my best students who spend a year to 18 months writing a memoir, essay, 10 to 20,000 words, that is then published in a book at the end of the year. We're working on our fourth. Andrews wrote one of the most read. He also was performed at the Downtown Writers Jam, Volume 1, very well. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. He is a very interesting young writer and artist, um, far beyond his years. Um, and in fact, is the kind of student that makes teaching terrible which you don't normally hear when you talk about your best students, but he's really just so good at the things that he does, and he's so young. You know, you stand in a classroom, and you have this idea that you're going to, I didn't, but many people have this idea that you're going to shape minds and that you're going to influence things. And really what you do is kind of keep kids in the, the middle of a track and let them find their way. And then you have students like Andrew who don't really need you to tell them where the tracks are because they're making their own versions of that, right? And as you get older, that's 
um, that you don't have that freedom or I don't have that freedom. Like that's this is the thing that artists I think is as you get older, you struggle with. Right. Like it's very easy to write about things when you're young and like everything is terrible and you have no money and you're poor and you're drunk and you're doing drugs and um, you're just kind of living by the fucking seat of your pants. It's there's a lot of stuff to write about. Right? Like in human misery, there are things that you can write about. And as you get older, like I look around my office now, like it's not, my life is pretty good. We have a fifth deal on the lake. It's not a nice, you know, it's a, it's not, it's a, it's 10 years old, but it's ours. Like we, it sits on a lake. We go down on the lake on the weekends. Like I have a dog snoring under me right now. Um, and I look out across a little suburban trail that I can run on. Like it's, there, there's nothing really to mind there that I'm interested in writing about. And so when you see students like Andrew who are at the beginning of their journey and you just know they have lots of things that they can give, uh, it's exciting, but it's also like, um, you know, I fucking don't want you to, I want to be there. I don't want to be able to do that stuff again. Um, although, you know, it was awful, like not knowing where your next, where, how you're going to eat. Uh, two different occasions when I lived in Austin, I moved to Austin. In 1996, like Christmas, I was teaching uh, middle school at the time. And I had sent off a bunch of query letters to magazines, like the Gen X magazines of the moment. Um, Swing Magazine, I think, was one of them, and George. And I had received handwritten, I, I didn't know shit about how the magazine industry works at that time. Like, I had no idea. Like, it was just some fucking magical place for which I was in this little Appalachian town. Um, in the, you know, I was in Cincinnati working from a little town. So I didn't have any idea. I didn't know. Like these magazines were just like people years later until I realized it was just like dudes and women sitting around trying to fill pages. So I'd written these queries and I got handwritten notes back from the editors. Um, Swing Magazine said they loved my pitch and that they wanted me to keep pitching. Uh, George, <laughs> managing editor, executive editor. It wasn't Kennedy. It was whoever else. Um, I think, I think I wrote something like, um, you do, this is a really shitty magazine, but it has so much potential. And here are some story ideas I have, which is the beginning of a long and illustrious career of bad fucking mistakes on my part. But swing magazine sent me a note back and I was really into Gen X literature at the time. And said, we love what you pitched. We, this doesn't fit, but keep pitching. So that I, what I heard was quit your job, move to Austin, and do a writing career. So I, I quit my job mid-year. I had these, you know, responsive rejection letters from magazines. Didn't move to New York, moved to Austin. So I moved as far away from where these magazines were as humanly possible and thought, I'll, I'll freelance. So, of course, I ended up not free, you know, I ended up bartending and finding jobs here and there where I could write and I'm not making any money writing online and stuff. But, like, that was the beginning. That was the, all it took for me to get started was a rejection. And that was, I was in. I knew that was the thing that I wanted to do. And so, you, you know, years later you end up teaching and you see these students like Andrew who are at the beginning of their career and you just know, like, I think that the life that I, the path that I chose is probably not the one that he's going to choose. I, I don't imagine there will be long, drunken, debaucherous, drug-filled years of, you know, blackouts and night. But he's so creative. He has everything at the beginning. And that's really, it is... Um, 
it is a struggle, I think, for older artists, older writers. I look around, and I, you know, I I try to find writers that I like today. I read things. I look for what I think is, you know, is vigorous and makes me question. And you know, I, I wonder sometimes if I found Hunter Thompson today, if I would have the same connection to Hunter Thompson that I did when I found him when I was eighteen. Right when I was fucking out of my mind. Now he he's a great writer. His early there's you know the Great White Shark Hunt um, and Hell's Angels are like the, two of my favorite books uh, of all time. But I wonder how much of that translate. I just remember reading his stuff at the end of his life as I was older and thinking this is derivative and not that good. Right, and so as I'm sort of reaching the <laughs> 42, I'm reaching the point where like I'm beginning to do more than you know, on my second and third projects. I'm wondering, have I reached that point where I'm going to be derivative of myself at the very beginning of what is my career because I spent so long writing shit and throwing it out into the middle of, you know, the blackness and darkness. So that's what I'm thinking as my, as I prepare for this conversation um, with Andrew, who really... Um, we're not. It, this I don't. I don't think that we're going to talk just about writing. That's my. That is what I suspect. I, he creates things. Like at the heart of what he does, he creates stuff, and that's. He, I find him so interesting because of that, and I think you will too. So, here's our interview. All right, so I actually, when you got into the Invictus project. Snuck in. Yeah, I had no idea who you were. Right. Uh, I still don't really know who you no, are. Well. So, but you but you came out of the comm department. And sort that, of. Because I'm not, I. You were on the speech team. I was, uh, yes. I was uh, on it for all four years because I had done it in high school uh, my for two years. And I, I really enjoyed speech. And speech was just like a big part of my life. But I'm actually. Uh, I'm an, I'm an English literature major, and I got a comm minor because I got some credits already for just being on the team. But, like, you know, in another way, like, you're like, you came from the con firm, and I'm like, sort of, I wasn't really in a member of the, you know, right. I was getting a minor sort of nominally, but, like, I'm an English lit person, actually. So, so. you weren't even, so, but not the creative writing part, right? No, like no, the, like, the uh, it's like that the I critical, find annoying. Yeah. it's the critical literature. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just, like. And I, I, you know, it, it's interesting once you kind of wade into the literary world a little bit, you, like, you know, like, once you start reading, like, you know, interviews with George Saunders and stuff like that, like, you learn that, like, this whole world that I still don't really feel like I totally understand of, like, MFAs and creative writing workshops and this idea that, like, you go somewhere and then sometimes, like, I'm thinking of, like, Michael Cabin, his, like, his first novel was, like, his master's thesis. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's this whole world of, like, where you go and the Iowa Writers Workshop and this kind of stuff. And, you know, it may have just been naivete on my part to, like, not think that I, like, needed or wanted to be a part of that. But I really felt, like, for me at least, that uh, if I could kind of understand, like, why literature worked the way it did. Like, mm-hmm. I already wanted to write, like, when I was in high school – 
I would write from like 11 to one every night. Yeah. Just like literally my mom, I don't think I was like, I didn't have a bedtime at that point. Cause my mom was like a single mom yeah. and like was too busy, like working to really like know when yeah. I was up or whatever. But like I was in my room, like writing, I had a shoe box. And when you say, right, you actually mean you did it by hand. Yeah. Right? I have, that, I have notebooks. You're I that have, like, person. I have like dozens that were of like bad, like poetry and like <laughs> right. weird little stories and things like that. And so in my closet, I have about 15 years worth of handwritten, like shitty, angsty. I remember <laughs> you discussing them, uh, in the class. Yeah. And so for me, like I, you know, uh, I was doing that. Like no one had to prompt me to yeah. do that either. So I really felt like at least from like a desire to write, point of view like i felt like i had that somewhat and so to me you know part of like running around at at ball state and trying to like just do as many different things as i could was more like what other experiences did i think that i could have that could maybe like inform or like connect me with other people or like lead me to other experiences that would like give me stuff to write about because from my perspective like i felt like i had you know not that i was like oh i'm this great writer but i just you know like the actual like spirit of writing yeah. like the desire to write like that was kind of like uh born into me already on some level and i just I, I was always confused by the notion as far as like from a creative writing perspective of like almost like um having classes that require mm-hmm. that you know yeah. on like um on such a like uh like homework like level you know because i think that your class i was a little bit more interested in doing that because it had like a long form aspect to it, you know, like understanding that it was more about um, like one long process, like like here's this piece and you're going to workshop this piece and that's what it's about rather than it's like, okay, this week we're going to write a poem and then everyone's going to talk about the poem. And just like even the people that I talk to about creative writing, and this is not to say that the creative writing department in in Ball State, like I I couldn't even give you my opinion on it because I wasn't a part of it. And I know some of those people, like I trafficked around because some of those people were like in my classes. But, uh, you know, I think it was more just like I, I just, the concept didn't yeah. seem to work for me. Well, and Invictus isn't really – it was a class when you had it because Ball State right. wanted me to do yeah. it. Like, it, to me, it's not. Like, most of the time it's this external um, – you know, thing, and there's not really guidelines right. other yeah, than, like, it's, finish the thing. Right. It's much more self-motivated, which yeah. I think appealed to me as well was this idea that, you know, one thing. Well, that, Emma, that's the debate. Like, I just posted this yesterday. There's um, 27 authors weighed in on the MFA process, right? And, like, half of them were like, absolutely do not do it. And the other half were like, oh, it was totally invaluable, yeah. right? Like It's hard. But, I mean, like, it's, that's, it's, it is a non-answerable question, right? Like, I didn't get an MFA. Sure. Like, I mean, but my journalism program was totally applied. Like, Berkeley was totally applied. But we didn't workshop shit. Like, when we were doing right. magazine stuff, we didn't sit around and, like, okay, like, what do you think about this? Like, it was a fix your shit. Like, you you made it, and you kept making it sure. until you made it right. Like, yeah. we didn't sit around and say, like, oh, what you should do in this paragraph is. Which is sort <laughs> well, of what I imagine workshops yeah, are like. Yeah, it's, it's hard because sometimes, like, I wonder if I'm imagining it wrong or, like, right. you know what I mean? Cause, right. cause, and, and it's probably, like, totally dependent on, like, where you are, like, what your classes are like, you know what I mean? Like, who's in them? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if you ended up with, like, I don't know, let's say you ended up in, like, like a magical class with, like, all these other people who ultimately end up becoming, like, established, right. prestigious writers, then, like, yeah, like, maybe you would get these people who are really, like, sure. wanted to work. But maybe you'd get, like, a bunch of people who are, like, isolated and frustrated and working on their right. own styles and, like, wouldn't care about yours at all. Like, I, I think it's all totally probably dependent. Right. But 
Well, and like Tolkien had the Inklings, right? Like the, they're For always sure. writing groups. Yeah, like, you know, no, it's just absolutely. whether you get the MFA out of it or not. Yeah, is. It's, it's very peculiar. I mean, like I don't know. I think that there are probably some things like, you know, uh, like maybe some people need that structure to like yeah. get them there like for fundamentals and stuff like right. that i mean but i don't know i think for me i just always felt like what was out in the world was of more interest or value to me that like the, the my concern was um just having almost like an unlimited amount of time in, right. you know what i mean that it's yeah. like you know it was the same reason that i you, you need know, experience if you're yeah, gonna write and like, I, I, and, and i know that it's like you know uh, th- th- i don't think it, that's cliche that in of itself <laughs> yeah. right is like this big debate too right. of like but i guess i was just concerned that it's like you know how many times can you like go back to the well to like get another degree and then like but right. then what do you write about in some right. ways you know and I, I know that there's like a school of of writers that would you know disagree and would say like you know that it's it's you know some people get their inspiration from like sitting in you know a library somewhere and like finding some you know weird archival document and then they just you know they read like an article in the newspaper from the 1930s and that you know inspires them you know to this whole world of imagination and and some people operate that way and um and that's awesome that would be really cool to be but i I have to think that you know and sort of like trying to figure out what kind of writer i was or am or wanted to be that it was seemed more important to me to like go out into the world and and encounter people and experiences there and that the part where I had to like transform that into an experience that others could engage with, uh, that part didn't really seem so difficult. Yeah. That part didn't really seem like um, I was really perplexed what I would spend like two years in the classroom doing with that in, yeah. a, in a master's program. Well, and I know that like at least, and then we're gonna we're gonna step back. Um, but the I think the benefit of the project, at least our interactions, was that as you were writing about, and we'll talk about your piece and. and writing about your father is is that you didn't need an MFA. You needed somebody like me who was an adult guy who could say, like, this maybe was what he was thinking. Or this, like, giving a perspective that as somebody who's younger, you just can't have, For right? Sure. Like, yeah. my writing groups have always been very mixed. They've been people of different mm-hmm. backgrounds who have different experiences because so much of writing to me is understanding how things can be perceived in different ways. Like, the yeah. writing's easy. Writing's yeah, writing. for sure. It's understanding yeah. what you want to say that I think is really hard. And, like, my writing partner, John, who is my age, but is completely – we could not be any more different if we tried. Um, he'll read my stuff and just, like, he sees what I don't – like, he sees, you know, he sees the things that I can't. And that has for always sure. been no, the that's, benefit. That's, and that, that, like, what you just said, the idea of, like, someone almost seeing something that you miss – you know, is is such a byproduct. I think of being, you know, consumed and enmeshed, and you're yeah, you're a part of the creation. I remember when I was in high school, I did a production of Much Ado About Nothing, and uh, in it, I played Dogberry, um, who I think was uh, in the film. I think it was uh, Michael Keaton, maybe. Uh, but he is like this really like uh, grimy character, and he's just like uh, kind of like all over the place. And I remember there's a point at the end of the production where uh, right before he leaves, he, like, gets a gold coin. And the first night that I got it, I uh, I slipped it in my pocket and made, like, you know, it was kind of like I it was clearly doing it for the audience. And uh, I remember going backstage and the guy that I was – who was directing the show really liked that. And he was like, oh, that was great. And up until that point, like, I had decided to do that in the moment. And mm-hmm. up until that point, he had never said 
it's okay to play. Like, in some ways, like, you know, that's, like, the sure. nature of a high school production. Is that, like, there's no one saying, like, probably the most important thing. Like, it's called to play for a reason. Right. You're supposed to be playing. But then the next night, I, I bit the coin to make sure that it was actually gold. Mm-hmm. Because he had said, like, if you want to do more, you can do more. And so in some ways, I also think, like, part of, like, what, what you're describing is, like, you know, you sort of pushing me to be more aware of, um, of different perspectives, you know, one, you know, it's like sort of just like a big part of like the great act of empathy that is writing, but also, you know, it's like sort of giving you liberty in some sense. Yeah. And I, and I always think about that moment because it was like, I had a lot more to give as an actor, even at that age than I even realized, but it wasn't, it had nothing to do with like my innate talents per se. It was more like, I just needed someone to say like, it's okay. It's yeah. okay to like, to, to push. Yeah. It's okay to play. And I think in, in writing, that's also very true that you almost need someone to, um, and it, I think that's what the group or, or the editor or, you know, what have you is really good for is just like reminding you in some sense that, um, you know, that in some ways it's, it's, you have to give too much yeah. so that you can pare down. Yeah. And if you're always restraining yourself, if you're always sort of like keeping one hand behind your back, you're really never going to get the material in the first place that will compel people to say, Hey, like, you know, this is something we should yeah. continue with. This is something that, that has more life in it. Well, I, always, I think that it is, for me, it is, uh, I'm very particular about who I let. Like, I put my stuff out as I'm reading, or as I'm writing it. Um, you know, my drafts are sort of all over the place in terms of the web and, and, and groups and stuff. But the people that I listen to are very, I, I listen to very, very few people because I find most people don't understand. If you need to have a process. And when you're, talking to me about it you have to understand what i'm trying to do not what you would do mm-hmm. right and i feel like there's a lot of yeah, workshopping sure. is like oh well, this is what i would do like well that's i don't not i don't really, really give a shit yeah, especially like, <laughs> i mean especially i think you know one thing like right now i'm reading um we need to talk about kevin mm-hmm. uh which was like a big bestseller and uh it was made into a film starring tilda swinton and whatnot and the thing about it is you know it's all written from her from her perspective and the thing that uh, from from the uh, the mother, uh, her son um, commits a mass murder, and and she's just sort of oh yeah 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 yeah, and it's but they're all it's like these letters that are all written from her perspective, and her tone is um is like deeply unlikable, and she's a deeply unlikable character. Mm-hmm. She's kind of odious in some ways, and you know I think about things like that sometimes that it's like you know. Uh, the author, um, Lionel Shriver, you know, is writing in this really particular tone. Or I think of, like, authors, like, you know, like like um, like Beckett or somebody like that, who just, they do what they do, or, like, Haruki Murakami. Like, these people who, who really just, like, you know, when we, when we talk about, like, the quote-unquote voice, like, these are authors that, that have one. And whether you like it or not is almost irrelevant to the right. fact that it exists. You know, like, <laughs> you know, sometimes, like, with Toni Morrison, when I read her, like, it doesn't really matter whether I like what she's doing it or not, because the fact of the matter is like Toni Morrison is like doing Toni Morrison. And right. it's so good or powerful because nobody else can do that. Right. And so, you know, for those people, I imagine sometimes like if you show that to someone or like, you know, it's sort of like that old, like, uh, debate between like Faulkner and Hemingway. And like, I imagine, you know, like if Hemingway was turning in papers today They'd be like, why are your sentences so short? Like, these sentences are terrible. Yeah. But it's like, you have to understand sometimes, like, what you're aiming for. And, you know, especially if it's something, like, idiosyncratic, like, you know, you have to be really diligent because if it's if it's not going to look like something that people can easily compare it to or if it's going to challenge certain conventions, like, you have to kind of hold fast. Yeah. Because, you know, I imagine sometimes, like, those sort of things 
ending up in like workshop settings and that people like, you know, 90% of the people in there would be like, this is terrible. Right. But I wouldn't do this. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, but that's, you know, if you're like, and I'm, you know, I would think like, good, good. Right. right. Like, yeah. 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 That and means I have done something. You know, there's, there's something to be said for like the difference between not knowing what you're doing and creating something that provokes that response. Right. And really, you know, I think Hemingway said something like uh, to the tone of, you know, you have to understand the rules so that you can break them, right? right? And it's that same notion of like, you know, if you're going to try something that's really polarizing, like there's a right way and a wrong way to do that almost. And I think a lot of that comes down to self-awareness, you know? Well, and that's why groups I think are, the right groups are beneficial. And, you know, if you get an MFA, that's great. If you have that, you know, if you have those people, but I I feel like it is, I could never, I thought about it for a little while. um, And I just, I would look around and think there's almost no chance that there's going to be a replicatable, you know, the same people every year that are going to be great for the same set of students that come in every year. Like, I think that it's probably really hard um, to find (laughs) that. But so I want to step back. So like, here's, this is what people don't know yet. Um, How old are you? I'm 22 right, right. now. Right, so you're that asshole that's like a kid that, like, they're going to hear you up until this point and be like, oh, I, like, he's a kid? What? Because yeah. you talk like Surprise. an adult, right? Like, you talk like Hopefully. you um, have been doing this for a long time. So, it, but you have, right? Like, yeah. You when know, did you start writing? Like, I, when was the moment? I remember very distinctly, like, the moments that led up to it, which was my dad uh, and this this actually comes up a little bit in the story. My dad. Really, so the story he's talking about is in the Invictus, right? The Invictus Project story. Yes, it sure is. Um, which um, is about his father. That that it is. And uh, so to go back to the so the moments that leading up to this that you knew you were going to write. Um, it was really you know it's yeah that's a really funny way to put it because I don't know that it was like I knew it was more just like oh um, so my dad was really really into progressive rock like that was like his. His thing, and so like a lot of the things like that I'm really thankful for that my dad passed on to me are like appreciations for certain just pieces of eclectic art. And so one of the things he just loved prog rock. So it was like a lot of yes, <laughs> it was a lot of Genesis, like the Peter Gabriel period. He was really kind of dubious of the Phil Collins period, appropriately so I think, and uh, like Vandergraaff Generator and all these kind of things. And so the back of his car was always like littered with CDs. And I remember when I was. 13, I think, I either found a portable CD player in the back of the car or I, my mom bought me one. I I found a portable CD player somehow and all of a sudden just like started like putting the CDs in sometimes and started to really like them. And then I finally like, I was riding the bus at that point because we had just moved to Indiana and, uh, um, from where? From Pennsylvania. That's where you're born. No. Uh, I moved about 13 times, I think, before I started <laughs> high school. Uh, I was born, it, just real quick, I was born in, in Peoria, Illinois, then moved to Chicago. And there were, like, minor moves in some of these places from, like, apartment to apartment or house to house. And then we moved to North Carolina for a year, and then we moved to Pennsylvania for five years, and then we moved to Indiana. So my parents' marriage was really, like, on its last leg by the time that we got here. And like move 13, that was the breaking point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, my mom, my dad had been working all this time. Like my dad had been the person who was working and he was working at QVC and, and in Pennsylvania, uh, right outside of Philadelphia. And then my mom, I think almost in an effort to kind of snatch economic security back from him, uh, he was like in the deepest 
like bouts of his manic depression at that point. And so his job, like performance was finally being like, and his alcoholism. So his job performance was like finally being affected yeah. and like, a. You know, yeah. and like a, the, the remarkable thing, and, and as someone who's uh, dealt with addiction yourself, you're probably aware of this, is like uh, how mind-bogglingly effective an addict can be when necessary. Yeah. But, it, you know, so for my whole childhood. To a certain point. Yeah. And, and then it, it just and, fucking falls completely apart. And that was really, <laughs> you know, where we had arrived at yeah. after, you know. From my perspective about it, you know, about a decade of, like, my dad, you know, always moving around and having these jobs. And then finally it was, like, falling apart. And my mom. And you're, like, 13. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and somehow aware of this. Yeah. Yeah. And Well, because it's not hard to be aware. Like, for sure. If you're in it. For like, sure. It, I, I will say, though, that it did seem very normal to me because when you. Sure, because you're a kid. Are moving all the time and really isolated from other right. families and a kid. Right. Uh, you don't have a sense. You just assume that's how families right. are supposed to work. And I, I definitely, you know, a lot of my writing and a lot of my introspection, like in the last decade, has been about kind of unpacking that, I think. Right. Because so, you see stuff on TV and you're like, that's not how it is. That's TV. Right? Like, I see the Huxtables or whatever. Like, for sure. Mind. Like, you don't, yeah. like, that's fake TV family. Yeah, like, in real it's, life, it's people are rare getting fired it. and moved around. Like, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and so, um, but my dad, you know, liked art a lot. And so he had all these CDs. And all of a sudden, like, I was riding the bus every day. And all of a sudden, like, I started collecting his CDs and, like, trying to figure out, like, you know, he had all the Beatles albums. And, I mean, he really liked music a lot. And... So I was listening to uh, a lot of Genesis from the Peter Gabriel's, like the Foxtrot album. I love that you said from the Peter Gabriel. Yeah, well, like, it's really it's, it's important it because, <laughs> because you know, uh, like my, from my dad's perspective, and I think this says a lot about him as a person. You know, he really viewed Peter Gabriel as like when he was in Genesis, and he liked his solo stuff right. as well. So, and which I, but it's very different, right? And he really viewed him as like a genuine like artist, yeah. like a quote unquote artist. And he did not feel that way about Phil Collins. He didn't like the commercial version of Genesis. He didn't, and yeah. I, you know, and like that rubbed off on me a lot. Yeah. You know, that sort of like um, you know, elitism is what it is. I mean, that's what like, I was going to say. Like, dad, so do you think that snootiness that you have? Like, I mean that in the best way, right? <laughs> like, I am absolutely the same way. Like, there are ways that things should be done. Yeah. And, like, and uh, it, it came from, from... You think it's from him? Yeah, for sure. Um, more so than my mom. Um, my dad, and this kind of comes out in the story as well, was really a byproduct of, like, one of the things that emerges in the story is that I didn't really know anything about my dad's yeah. life because he would have... Uh, He's an addict. Like, you hide stuff from everybody. And then also, you know, he would have these manic depressive delusions. And so, like, his life story one time would be different than his life story another time. It is a way that we hide things, whether it be through addiction or through these sort of mental um, hiccups that we have. And so, you know, what I learned just from interacting with my mom and sort of unpacking this story over years, but then also while writing this particular story. Right was the way in which my father really uh, was always trying to almost, like, recreate his identity. Or, you know, he. I remember my mom told me once about an interaction that my father had with my grandfather on my mother's side. Or, yeah, and my, my grandfather on my mother's side was a college professor at the University of Connecticut for, like, 50 years, had lived in England for a long time. Like, he was, like, um, like really, like, like brilliant yeah like you know and I, I felt like a lot of fidelity to him because that was both like what we were good at was like ostensibly being smart <laughs> and my father his his dad had apparently at one point attempted to like run for some kind of public office in illinois 
And your my, father or your grandfather? My, my, my grandfather on my father's side, who okay. I've I mean, never met. I mean, he died when my dad was pretty young. Um, and my father, like, tried to, like, overstate his importance. Like, I think he said that he had been, like, elected as a senator or something like that. And my grandfather, who's, like, this, you know, brilliant guy with, like, an encyclopedic memory, uh, I remember him talking to my mom. Or not, I don't remember, but I've heard, from what yeah. my mom told me, afterwards, my grandfather, like, mentioned to my mother, like, there's no way his dad did that because I know he didn't do that. But those were the sort of, like, if you didn't have someone who could, like, fact check right. my dad, like, you just had no idea because he was so charismatic and so convincing yeah. and, you know. Plus, we just assume people are not full of shit. Well, I mean, like, no, 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 absolutely. Is, I know as an addict, that is a thing you yeah, rely on. Like, but I, I will say something in a charming way and you'll think, right, why yeah. do we lie about that? Yeah. And so there was a lot of, you know, me not really being sure ultimately, like, who my father was, but then also, like, my dad always felt like was trying to, um, this snootiness that you yeah. talk about was almost like my mom had lived in England. She was the daughter of a college professor. Like, my mom came from, like, a really progressive liberal background. But my dad, you know, came from, like, all really poor family with a lot of, like, uh, mental illness and addiction. And I think was always trying to, like, associate himself with more... um, uh, With what your mom did. Yeah, that and with, you know, I mean, he wanted to be European. I mean, I think yeah. my dad would have given anything to have been European. He was yeah. obsessed with David Bowie. <laughs> and so I became obsessed with David Bowie because uh-huh. those, those CDs were back there. So Peter Gabriel was just like, those early Genesis albums aren't really like songs so much as they are like, you know, oftentimes like stories or poems and right. music. Like, they're incredibly theatrical. Right. And like, there's one... The 70s and early 80s were like... <laughs> I mean, like, that was... A, yeah. Was a, like, you think of like Jim Croce and like all those things were like 10-minute songs. Yeah, and that's the thing is they had i mean you know like the the on those albums like selling england by the pound and things like that like it was rare to have a song under six minutes and right. i was fascinated by the lyrics and they and weren't I, like rhymy lyrics they were like stories no, yeah, right they like were. they were like they were so every, cool. like you didn't listen like, to it and go i wonder what they're talking it's, about it's funny because a lot of that <laughs> music is like unpacked now yeah as really hokey and really corny oh i love and, that stuff but it's it was story it's why time, I hate it's why know? I hate pop music like yeah. when it's just like random metaphorical things and I'm like <laughs> this doesn't mean anything that drives me crazy. But I was so intrigued by the idea that you know Peter Gabriel, who was the main lyricist of Genesis at that time, was like you know taking like English folk tales mm-hmm. and you know and a lot of times doing really interesting things with them too. Is like a lot of them were almost like um, I know that like in Selling England by the Pound, like you get this weird mix of like. He's taking, like, all this contemporary – it's, like, there's elements of, like, T.S. Eliot in yeah. it. There's elements of, like, Greek philosophy, like Tiresias. Do you know it. this when you're 13, 14? When, are you, like, go, are you that obsessed I, I with it? I think I was, like – I was. Are you retroactively found, obsessed? No, no, I was. You were I definitely then. was. Like, I, you know, like, I was, like, where – where you know, because he was writing, like, all these weird things that were, like, mixing almost, like, the things that you would have to learn in, you know, college. Yeah like college literature courses right. he was like mixing those Remixed things with into like a song and and also like looking at like contemporary issues in yeah. england like almost like the loss of english identity yeah. and stuff like that like you know the the england for the english kind yeah. of stuff so do you think you're doing this because you know things are falling apart at the house and like your dad like do you think that was a way that you were trying to connect with your dad like through your lens like my dad loves this this is a thing that i love like it definitely was it was i think it was like simultaneously like a way of having something to talk about with him yeah when i did have to talk to him but then it was also like 
it was escapism in a right. lot of ways. Like, if I could just – I mean, I had these huge CD cases. Like, so but in 13 to 14 to 15 to 16, I started, like, buying – I would take my allowance and I would buy a CD yeah. every weekend. And then I had these huge cases, like the CD cases, and then I would take them with me on the bus. And, like, what I chose to listen to that day yeah. was, like, a big choice. Yeah. It was, like, something I really thought about. It's like picking out clothes for other people. Like, what am I listening <laughs> to go in? And – so I think, like, on the one hand, like, it gave me, like, you know, something to, like, sort of filter myself into. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you know, I remember... But it, you also get to tap into the the mythology that your father's created, right? Like, sure. I am this sort of erudite person, and yeah. so you can interact with him in the... Like, I'm going to listen to the erudite music, right? And that For is sure. the place that and, I'm going to... That's where I'm going to connect with him. And yeah, and I, I also had the, the really bizarre experience over, like, you know, the next three years of, like, watching that fail, too. Because I remember uh, one of the last times that we interacted, I had started listening a lot to Nick Drake, who's an English folk musician. And his albums, he only made three and then he died, uh, are, like, he made, over the course of, like, you know, a handful of years are, like, regarded widely as, like, these, these great, like, yeah. uh, classic folk albums from you know 69 to 71 and i remember i bought a collection of his like unreleased songs because i was really into him and i was like, trying to get all his music and uh my dad and i had been pretty well separated at this point and i remember we were driving in the car and i put it on and my dad was really disinterested in it and it was like not that different from the sort of thing that he would have liked but i think it was because i was the one presenting it to him yeah. you know and it was such a bizarre moment of like almost um you know uh, the the Padawan had, had emerged, <laughs> right. you know, and he was really uncomfortable with that. I mean, I think, like, it worked for him so long as there was, like, an element almost of, like, hero worship. Yeah. But when it traversed into me really starting to, like, establish, like, my own identity and, yeah. like, find my own things and, like, almost try to bring them back to him, he was incredibly resistant yeah. to that. So how much are you writing during that, like, I mean, you're listening to this stuff, like, you're going out and reading all these of finding out, like, the the influences yeah. that are leading to these su- things. I like, was super getting into the internet at that point. Because, yeah. like, for me... Super getting into it. Super. <laughs> I was so... No, really, though, but, like, because now... Because what year is this? This is, I mean, this is, what, 2000? Uh, uh, yeah, let's see. So I'm, let's say, 13. So that was 7 plus 2 is 9. So that was 9 years ago. So, like, 2003. Sure. Yeah, yeah. something like that. And so we had a computer. I just had never really thought of it as, like... I didn't really know. Like, I just think this might be of mild interest to you yeah. as someone who's, like, an internet. Like, right. It's, it's part of your identity, yeah. right? Well, like, for me, at 2003, like, at 2001, 2002, I probably didn't really know the internet existed. Right. But when I found it, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was, you know, and I could, like, Google the lyrics. <laughs> right. or maybe Google. I don't right. know. Maybe it was Yahoo at that time. But, like, I could look up the lyrics and I could find out more about what they were talking about and that was fascinating to me so while all this is happening i am on our computer we had a computer like in the room that ultimately my dad would end up sleeping in by himself after my parents had like separated separated because my mom probably let my dad stay in the house for about a year before she like made him leave because she felt a lot of guilt about letting him go so to speak so he was like Really, and at this point, and I, I didn't realize this, but my father at this point was heavily addicted to uh, to painkillers, yeah. and so 
when I think about this time, I think about my like, my dad was like a zombie, yeah. right? And then I after I later learned that that was why I was like, oh, that wasn't my perception right. that my dad seemed out of it all the time. My dad was um, like heavily medicated yeah. constantly, and so basically just like floating through life. But meanwhile, like when he wasn't in that room. I would be in that room, and I remember I created a Word document, and I started writing, like, my own little – and they were such, like, clearly, like, bad Peter Gabriel invitations. <laughs> like, I would pick a myth, right. and then I would write a poem about right. it. And that – But that's how it works, right? Like, absolutely. when I was a kid, I used to write Fitzgerald. I would go read, like, Gatsby and, like yeah. – I would actually write Gatsby. Like, I would just copy it just right. so that so I could get the sense of, like, works. yeah, like, what would it be like to write <laughs> to this? Yeah, and I did it with Hunter Thompson. Like, it's it. that's how I learned to write. Yeah, like, so I have a lot of respect for that whole idea of just, like, doing really, really bad things for a long time. <laughs> right. Because, like, I think about... It's the process, right? I think like, about, you know, 14 to 18-year-old Andrew was, like, up every night just, like, you know, scribbling poetry right. in these notebooks. Like trying to work through shit, right? Like, without even any intention of anyone seeing right. them or, you know, there was no... But you understand that you were working through... Like, writing yeah. to you then became this place to work out. It did. And it wasn't. And it was did so... You, did you know that? Did you think, <laughs> No, like, I had no idea. It was so non-goal-oriented. Yeah. It was really... You just had to write. It just yeah, had to get out. Yeah, and it's out. so weird to put it that way, but... Like, when you think of something not as, weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, but it really was. Like, I, you know, like when it says, like, how, when did you know? Well, I don't even know. There's no knowing right. involved so much as there was, like, a compulsion. Like, right. That it was. It's like, when did you know your sexuality or whatever? Like, right. And you just, like, well, I didn't. Yeah. It like, was just, it was just that's what existed yeah. for me. And I just, I remember there being a really cathartic feeling, too, when I was working. Because at first I was working on the computer. And then late at night, because my dad was sleeping in the room, I eventually moved over to notebooks. And then just, like progressing through the notebooks all the pages were numbered but then in the word document like i remember when the word document got above 100 pages <laughs> of, of just like bad computer right. poetry right like uh, for no one to see ever that no one knew existed yeah i guarantee uh do you know, do, i want to interject do you know in san i think it's san francisco they have a i can't remember what the name of it is but there's an event where people bring out their journals oh, really? it's like the writer's jam only <laughs> they read like shitty stuff that their 15 year old wrote wow. yeah. yeah and so you just come and say like and i'm gonna read you the poem of like my heartbreak wow <laughs> yeah, yeah I, which i think is brilliant right because it lets people know like everybody who writes sure starts has like a weird with emo uh, yeah like all sure. writing oh, begins with emo that totally, <laughs> that is, it was just like it was that plus like it was that combined with like weird victorian literature right because, right whatever you're reading at the time I was, and, yeah, yeah. And, and i was also fascinated because you know a lot of those you know had to do with just like um like the negative consequences of everyday life you know like if you did if you like upset some some elemental force right. then you know like, a lot of those, like, are really grim and dark. Like, really bad things would happen. Right. You know, like, people's heads would fall right. off. And, like, they were all very, like, gothic and over the right. top. And I was really intrigued by that, too. I think because it just, like, uh, it spoke, I think, to, like, part of my existence was that the, the world, like, there was that undercurrent of hostility to right. the world. And I think I identified with right. that. And chaos, right? Like, this sort of brewing chaos right. of, like, yeah. uh, my mom had uh, depression. And, you know, in, in the years since, I I have described it as I, every day I woke up and I didn't know which mom was going to be there, right? Like, I didn't know whether it was going to be depressed mom or, like, June Cleaver, who she was right. like, you know, I had an idyllic childhood in many ways. But, like, that is one that it took me some time and some therapy to figure out, like, sure. 
when you get up every day and don't know what you're going to see as a kid, like that fucks you up. It does. <laughs> it, no, it absolutely. And, it, you know, a lot of the, I remember, you know, for me, like uh, I had to go to therapy when I was uh, 16. Because uh, you stopped talking to your father. I did. What, at when? Uh, at 16. Yeah, 16. like, and you wrote but in, like, the, like, I, uh, did. I don't yeah, want to fucking yeah, talk yeah, to you and anymore. I, and I, I have a lot of, like, I have very mixed feelings about that decision yeah. that I made. Like, and I probably always will. Like, yeah. They'll probably actually only intensify. But at 16. But it was right around then that this, the therapy. Yeah, and I, I bring that up not just to be like, oh, I happen to be in right. therapy. But because I actually had to go to therapy specifically so that I no longer had to see my father. Yeah. Because the therapy was really oriented around, uh, I had to go specifically for 10 sessions. And then the person that I went with, the woman, uh, she, uh, who, who was my counselor, would then rule. Like she would, she would yeah. be able to like sort of make a recommendation that my father had to undergo counseling right. if he wanted to continue. And for me, like I, at that point I had like refused to go, yeah. but I was actually, and this is, gets into a, a whole different thing about just like why the, the court related system surrounding divorce is frustrating to me. Right. Uh, I've never known anybody to go through it. That's like, this is really humane. And yeah. Good. Well, my mom, <laughs> you know, I, I was obligated to go every other weekend yeah. and, you know, it was a hostile environment. Like the right. word, you know, what I think is probably the what I one of the things that I'm proudest of in that story is writing about my last night with my dad, which yeah. was like the worst night of my life. And it, you know, so I was, and I was clearly in danger. Like it was bad. But not only did no one, in in terms of recommending the times, ever talk to me, but when I didn't want to go because it was unsafe, you know, I was technically. Uh, putting my mom in jeopardy because they just viewed it. If I didn't want right. to go, if I was like, I'm not going to physically get in this car and go, yeah, it was viewed as trouble. my mother being in contempt of court. Right. So, you know, we were in this really dicey position where I was like, I'm not going to go, especially because it was damaging my relationship with both parents. Right. But I had to go to therapy specifically so that I no longer had to right. see my father. And that it was not like... Um, it's noteworthy to me that that was not viewed as a trial. That was viewed as awesome. I have a way out. Right. And that was hugely significant. And at the point where I no longer had to do it, that is, yeah, when I, when it had been ruled that my father was offered, you know, really what he had to do was go through a certain amount of mandated uh, therapy sessions. And then if he did that, you know, they could sort of like null and void yeah. my ruling right. that I shouldn't have to go. And uh, my father just either didn't have the income or the inclination. He just never did it. Yeah. Which, which in its own way, said something, I think. Yeah. About, you know, my father was really so uh, motivated by convenience as well. Like, the idea that he would have to go through this whole extra set of steps, which yeah. would ultimately, like, potentially require him to, like, be self-reflective, like, wasn't worth it to him or, or was a choice that he didn't make. Yeah. And so this is – so. This is the interesting thing for us because, you know, having grown up with depression um, from a mom but also being an addict, like one of the things that I would always push back on you is that it – as an addict, I know I made decisions like that to people in my life. Uh, and I made them not because it, – it was certainly narcissistic and easy for me to not do those. But there were many times I didn't do those things specifically because – I knew that it was going to be better for that person, right? Like, I was a fucking train wreck for, like, 10 years, like, just... And so putting myself... Inject, like, the few times that I would inject myself into people's lives, it was never better. And so... But as, like, my mom's dad was an alcoholic and whatever, and I don't know if he did that 
but I know him making the choices that I hear you talk about has totally had an impact on my mom. Like, she doesn't see it from the view of the addict. She sees it from the view of the child whose father didn't do that. And as an addict, I look and go, well, there may have been this other thing. And her response, and I think probably many people, maybe yours, but is, that's great. And I'm super glad that that was, but it fucked me up. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I can definitely say that it's it's hard sometimes, too. There are moments when I think about about his death. And, Yeah. yeah, I guess... Spoiler alert for yeah. the story. Well, we're 50 minutes in. It's not a... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah my, my, my father died by suicide last year. Right. And, uh, as you were writing the story about your father. As I was father. writing the story, which, which yes, yeah. and Which was, was totally fucked up, and that was a... It was an odd moment, yeah. for sure. Because the story was originally going to be about... Um, and the story is in Invictus Volume 3, and it is... Um, it was about your relationship with your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that, it evolved to that. It started with your... Um, eyesight. That was yeah, the first yeah. thing you were going to talk that, about. That had been something, you know, that's like, that's something that still dominates, like, my experience of the world right. a lot. And so, like... So, uh, you're, you're legally blind. I am, and colorblind. And colorblind. Fully colorblind. Yeah, I have blue cone monochromacy, which is a, a rare genetic eye condition, and so... So, you hit the lottery. <laughs> with, um, <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah it was, it was, so, this was originally the story that you were going to write, and then we sort of got you to... to, to sort of tweaked it to your father. Yeah. Um, and then in the middle of writing the story about right. this sort of relationship, you, I don't even remember, it was just a few weeks in, I think. It wasn't too, too far. Yeah, it, we were in February, I think. Um, so we had started in January. Yeah, so it was just like four, three or four weeks yeah, into it. it was pretty um, Your father commits suicide, which then sort of changes the whole tenor of the story. It did, yeah, because it really, um, you know, for me at least as a writer, like obviously it could have gone a lot of different ways, but, but one of the ways that it did go was a really, really, you know, deep introspection about uh, about our relationship and, and about choices that were being made and about the gravity of choices that were being made. And I know that it's something that I've thought about a lot in the aftermath because obviously, like, I have some distance from having written the story now. <laughs> and In fact, we tried to get you to not write it because it was so in the yeah, middle of shit. Are you sure. glad that you did it then? Uh, are, are you asking? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, think that that, I think that, honestly, I just feel like uh, the story couldn't have been what it was without that happening. And I know that sounds very odd, but, like... I was a it, writer, I get it. Yeah, if that <laughs> makes sense. But it's also, you know, it's really hard, too, sometimes. Like, you know, there are moments, like, what you just described of um, a person, you know, struggling, you know, with, say, uh, something overwhelming yeah. that affects other people and understanding that it's, like, they almost need to step away, like... There have definitely been moments where I've thought about that in relation to his suicide, and I will never know what motivated that right. entirely. Like it's, and especially just you because know, it's not like there's a thing, right? No, like absolutely. it's this swirl of fucking absolutely. shit that just. But I wonder sometimes, and and sometimes I feel really narcissistic for saying so because it, it seems like the ultimate. Right. Like, I I mean I'm sure I was a part of that decision, but again, like to your point, right? right. Like it's so many things, but I wonder sometimes if he understood that after having been out of work so long and you know my mom went through a long court battle to get a restraining order because he was harassing her for a long time like my father remained a very odd uncomfortable hovering presence over our lives and like you know in a lot of ways like haunted them. you know there was always the threat of something could happen or something else could happen and you know i wonder sometimes if on some level he understood that uh that by almost taking himself out of the storyline, yeah. it would like 
allow us to like move on. Yeah. You know, I know that that's like so true for my mom is that like, and it's so uncomfortable to say like the day, yeah. the days after he died, like I felt like, uh, not comfort. Cause obviously I was feeling so many things, but like one of the things I was feeling was like, relief you that, feel safe that no one was, yeah. yeah i mean because yeah. i because i had been i'd been harassed yeah. by this man for like yeah. a decade and now you know i mean like amongst a host of other things that i knew i'd be missing i did know that like i could unlock my twitter right because you know there were and i know it right. sounds that sounds like such a bizarre i'm actually shocked you have twitter i think <laughs> you hate computers so much um that i but you know what i mean like it's one yeah. of those things where it's like because there have been times when i like where his relationship with me was like more through like the few things yeah. I posted on the internet and yeah. he would like harass my mother about things I was posting. Yeah. So like, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I know that sounds like such a minor thing, but it's like, it's, I mean, I went, when I went through the amends process, I sat down with people who told me they were very happy. I was sober, but they never wanted to hear from me again. Sure. Like, so I can like, and it was because not because I had harassed them or, but just because I was a fucking tornado of chaos Yeah. and people. So I can't imagine what would happen. I can ima- I, I I understand that feeling of relief, right? Like when that tornado goes away yeah. and you know. Because with me, if I start drinking again, I could show back up in these people's lives. But right. there's, that's not a possibility. Yeah. Right? And like, I, I mean, I know that it was true for me, but I mean, like, I, you know. It's such a common feeling. Especially for my mom. Yeah. I mean, for, because because oh, yeah. in some ways, you know, like, and this had always been her role in our relationship was my mom was like a defender. Sure. And. And then how do you not feel guilty about that, right? Like there is a sense of guilt that comes with feeling relief yeah well yeah amongst so many other things sure. right and so yeah i definitely feel like um i don't know i, I think there's got to be so many things that were going on there but one of them i think might have been just an understanding that um in some ways like his exiting from our story would like allow us the room that we needed yeah. to go on with our lives because they're is such a definitive before and after. Yeah. And, and, right. and I, and also like, you know, there are times I know that that story, you know, part of writing, it was trying to like develop the proper amount of empathy for him. And it's, it's interesting because every once in a while, like something like Robin Williams death right. was hard for me. Yeah. It was weird, you know, because all of a sudden, <laughs> I mean, for lots of reasons, yeah. one, because I didn't like Robin Williams as an actor because he reminded me too much of my dad yeah. and then they died and not only did they die, but they died in the same way. Right. And all of a sudden the internet blew up with all of these people writing articles. Like I remember seeing one that said, uh, and this is, it was a slate article and slate always has terrible titles. <laughs> they just there. It's like the clickbaitiest yeah. ever, but they'll have, they had this title for this article that was about, it was about the discussion of depression, which resulted from Robin Williams death in a lot of different places. And yeah. that's good. But the title of the article was, uh, I bet Robin Williams knew he was loved, colon, unfortunately, love is not a cure for mental illness. It was, it was pretty much virtually that. Yeah. And I remember just being like, just want to smash enraged yeah. because I'm like, well, my father died the same way that this guy did. And you know what I felt? absolute confusion an overwhelming amount of just like empty space where i was trying to figure out like what happened here so i'm like i'm glad slate contributor who has never met robin williams that you know how he felt it's whenever things like that happen there so i like as an addict my response is always 
very different. And, and my little Facebook feed of addicts is always the same, which is like, God damn it, go to a meeting. Like, you don't kill yourself. Like, it's bad enough to be an addict and inflict that on people. But if you know you're an addict and you know you're depressed, the response to fucking wanting to kill yourself is to go to a meeting. Is to not, because now you've inflicted that on people again, right? Like, you've continued that. So it's it's always a very, for recovering addicts, sure. when we see people do shit like that, yeah. it's never, oh, how tragic. It's, you fucking narcissist. Like, go, you know how to deal with this. Sure. And then you see these other people who are like, who are, we call them the humans, right? The people that don't <laughs> deal with addiction who are like, oh, God, how terrible. So it's, just, it's interesting to see. And then, like, people like my mom or people like you that ex- have experienced firsthand that don't want to hear any of that. Sure. Right? Like, because yeah. it's it's just interesting. Like, those yeah. things no, are, they bring all up. all sorts of different. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't really, you don't see, like, it's why I love Russell Brand, right? Like, because he writes things like, you know, when Katy Perry, uh, not Katy Perry, um, uh, Amy Wine, uh, Amy, Amy Winehouse. Yeah, when she died, like he wrote. That's what he wrote. Like his mm-hmm. piece was like, it's not a tragedy. Like she was an addict and she didn't do what she needed to do, and we didn't fucking make her do what she needed to do. That's why it happened. Sure. It's not a mystery. Um, and you know, for me, that informs so much of my writing. Like, I, do you think this is going to loom over the things that you write? Like, oh, absolutely. Is it always like you know you get a perspective, right? Like that voice you talked about. I feel like that's because it's. So there's like nine questions here. Great. So we start with, I knew you as like this guy who won the national championship in speech or whatever. Sure. Like, well, I don't, I don't pay attention to that shit. But you won something like yeah. you did. Like you're very good at this public speaking thing, yeah. right? This speech. Um, was it debate or was it speech? It was speech. speech. It was forensics. Yeah. Uh, and then there is so like to me, and then you did literature, right? Which isn't writing; it's sort of the study of what's happening out there. Yeah, and for me, like that does inform a lot of like how I approach it. You know, yeah. being exposed to so many things, like that was valuable for me. But I understand like that not everyone would want or desire that skill yeah. set. But for me, it was really productive. And so. so, is writing the thing that you're going to do with this stuff now? Like, is that what you want to do ultimately? It's definitely been what I've been aiming at mm-hmm. uh, like right now I'm working in production yeah. for a film like I work at WFYI and so there you know I'm sort of more working in like a filmic environment but mm-hmm. that was always something that like my writing abilities are something I really felt like I could you know kind of uh, mm-hmm. meld with an interest in video and storytelling mm-hmm. and things like that are you still writing yeah so what do you, like, what um, kind I, of stuff are you two, working on? I have on? two kind of things. Cause I, I thought about this before I came. Because you knew I was going to ask. Yeah, <laughs> well, um, I have two things going on. One uh, is a is a, just I write a lot of, uh, of poems about colorblindness. And I would uh-huh. really like at some point if I'm sort of just going to, like, keep. I, I just, like, when something, when I have an experience and something pops out at me about being colorblind because it's one of those things where it's like you say that's people and you know everybody knows someone who's missing like a color but right. like you know I'm, com- I'm completely colorblind uh and it doesn't mean anything unless you are right like i can't really i don't know what that looks sure. like yeah and yeah. it you know we're we look at like you know the same coffee cup but we see different things yeah. and also like it affects my life in so many ways because yeah. like i can't drive a car i can't really like i right. can't dress myself unless i'm like i don't care what happens here <laughs> yeah. which is most of the time but like it just affected so many things like that I felt accepted or included in. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've been working. I'd love at some point to publish a chat book. It's yeah. like a small collection of just poem. Because, you know, when I think about like the poetry 
books, like the small ones, like the independent, yeah, yeah. you know, that I like. They're always a lot of times they're like themed around something that's like really specific. Like, right. I'm thinking of like Shani Jean Maney has a really good one that's about uh, she's an Illinois poet who had uh, um, who had her life is more bigger than this statement, but she had a miscarriage, yeah. and that like she has a book of poetry called I Love Science that where that like that runs throughout it, and yeah. it's like a huge like that's you know you could say that's what the book is about ostensibly, yeah. and I think about that sometimes, and it's like when I, a big part of what I think helped in doing Invictus was that I think that along with my dad's death, which was a component of that helped me to understand, like, what the themes were that I felt a relationship yeah. with. The things that you wanted to write about. That I had yeah. something to say about, you know, right. because I think that, for me, I was like, what? And, like, how do you teach, right? It's impossible to teach that or workshop that, right? Which is, yeah. like, what's, the, what's important to you? Which yeah. is really what yeah. writing is about, right? Like, what is the thing that you have something to say? And for me, I think a lot of it almost came down in some, like, small sense to, like, not only just what do I have to say, but what do I have to say that I don't think everyone else might be saying? Yeah. Because, well, that's what I mean, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's your point of view, like. Sure. Because, uh, you know, I mean, some things are, like, unabashedly, like, you know, quote-unquote universal, whatever that yeah. means. But, you know, for me, like, when I think about, like, what is something that I've dealt with every day of my life yeah. that is really kind of, like, small, that shapes my world in, like, in a small but profound way. Right. That's it. So that's something I write about a lot. The other thing is a longer-form piece that's kind of in the style of, like, you know, an Invictus kind yeah, of yeah. thing. That is about um, – I, uh, I didn't kiss anyone until I was 20 years old. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so I met, I met a woman, a really, I guess technically a girl at that time because she was a few years younger than me. She was two or three. She thinks she was 17 right when I met her. And uh, so I met her at – I was judging a speech competition, <laughs> and, and the national speech competition yeah. for high school. So uh-huh. I was in college. I was, like, going into my junior year. Yeah. So, like, you know, ostensibly, like – you know, six months from that time, I would be working with you. Uh, and we met, and I, I judged around that she was in, and then I talked to her for about 10 to 15 seconds after the <laughs> round, which you're not supposed to do. Right. But, like, I just was – But was that like, was happening. I'd seen such, wow, <laughs> yeah. never, never stop. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't let those kind of rules uh, – Rules my mellow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I was there, and it was so good. She ended up getting second in the nation. Yeah. It was a great piece. And I, I talked to her for about 15 seconds, and then sort of like we went our separate ways, and I was like really struck by this person. Well, uh, I ended up flying out to the state that she lived in, which was Arizona. Yeah. About mm, four, about mm, two months after that, yep. and uh, to see her, four, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's, I think right. part of what's interesting about that is like both like the good and the bad of that is that like that is like a movie moment, yeah. it, but it happened, yeah. and there are some aspects of it that are really realistic. Like there are some moments of it that feel so heightened. And yeah. so like, there are moments that like align with like what you would see on screen. And then there are moments that are really terrible, that don't. Yeah. And I, so I think, or know, that appear in the independent films. Right. Yeah. You got it. It's but, melancholia. You know, right? I was really struck just I mean, when I think about un- unpacking that experience a lot, like what, what that means when the first person that you kiss and the first person that you have sex with yeah. is, the first person you ever engaged in any of those right. things with and you're older than most people are at that age yeah. and it's in a state that you're only going to be in for four days specifically to see that person yeah. and then like the pressures that come along yeah. with like that level of intensity in a yeah. relationship like where do you go from there and i think that that is um 
So, like, I was on the internet in 84, but, like, that was, like I was 12, and there wasn't a whole lot of 12-year-olds that were, like, you know, <laughs> hanging out around. Yeah. And so, like, to me, that is a – I have friends that I've never met. I have people all over the world that I've never met and probably never will meet. And I think that that is one of the really fascinating parts about today is that – those kinds – now, obviously, you met in person, but, like, those kinds of – like, distance means something different today than sure. it did in 1975, right? Like, that the distance isn't the same. Um, yeah, very, and yet, the reality of it yeah. is that it's the same. Right. right? Well, and very, very few of the relationships that I've pursued have been uh, – the other person has been in Indiana. Like, yeah. Like, less than 50%. I, I deal with guarantee. this shit with – people all the time and even in like my field like or my fake field of professoring like people have for years had like spouses in different places sure. like that yeah. just sort of but the ways in which you know technology allows us to somewhat negotiate these yeah, things yeah. you know like even from like saying like something like like video chatting right but then you get to something like facetime which makes like video chatting that much easier right. now you can just do it whenever you want right. you don't even have to like have a computer right. it's with like you. everything but a hug Right. right, like yeah. it's everything but the actual yeah. physical, and uh, and yet you know, like the film Her, the Spike Jones film, yeah. would suggest like if that that if that isn't there, if you can't actually have that, then like in some ways it's it's destined to fail. Yeah, I mean, like there's a reason. Yeah, I mean, there are um, the technology introduces lots of really fascinating things about what it means to to have connections. Um, and I can be friends with people that aren't in the same room, but even, but, but if you spend three years apart and get in the same room, those first few minutes are always a little weird, right? Because sure. now oh. you're navigating the non-computer mediated I, self. I've had interactions with people before that have begun as texting. That's very common, I would say, yeah. especially for my age right. group. Like that's where you start in some ways. But then, you know, I know that when I move to the phone, all of a sudden, you're dealing with space. And right. texting is very, like, one-to-one. It's right. like, I text, then you text, right. then I text, then you text. Because if you text more than once, like, uh, you're lame. But <laughs> when you move to the phone or when you move to Skype or, like, you know, and I'm talking about these in relationships yeah. where, like, it, you know, we're, like, a couple steps out from, like, right. the real thing, right? Because that's just the nature of, like, getting right. to know someone in, in a, in a long-distance setting. Yeah. Where, you know, a lot of times when people call initially, like, I really struggle with, like, the the open space. I yeah. struggle with the silence, right? And a lot of times I have to let people know, like, okay, we just try this a couple more times with me. Like, I promise, like, the longer we do it, the better I'll get at it. And I feel like I have to reassure people that, like, I know that... So you really are, like, the socially awkward rider. <laughs> like, like just living up to those stereotypes, Right, like, totally I a cliche. I, like, I really, yeah, super. Right. I really do feel like I kind of have to, like, warn them yeah. that, like, you narrate your life. Don't worry. I, I promise it will get better. Yeah. Like, I promise I, I have meaningful and fulfilling things inside of me if you'll just wait around. It'll probably just won't, you won't start to see them until, like, the fourth phone right. call. So. You narrate your life. This is, so this is a thing that people say about me. Like, I will go around and say the things that are happening. Right, like if something's, I'm like, oh, this is the moment where everything's awkward. Uh-huh. And people are like, that. Nobody says that. I'm like, writers say that. Uh, like, if I was writing the piece, this would be the point where sure. I would tell the audience, right, like, right. by the way, yeah. everybody, right, um, as a way to sort of alleviate. So, how do you write about that? Like, how, like is, that's the thing you want to write about. Like, you're you're writing about um, that relationship. Like, that's you, it, it's a nonfiction thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So, and do you think you exist in nonfiction because of the? I, I, this is a question I always ask people. Like, I'm in nonfiction. I know because I was an addict, and so I created fucking fictions all over me. So, like, truth is very important to me. 
because I lived so much of my life in like the chaos of I didn't know what was real or not. Do you think that you gravitate towards that nonfiction because of that? I think that for me, part of it is uh, that I think nonfiction, like if you're at least the way that I try to approach it, is really uh, very fixated on details. Mm -hmm. And to me, like that's what I think about. Like when I think about looking back on those moments, like you know, like the first scene in the piece that I wrote for Invictus, like with the jam packets, you know, and how like I would move the jam packets around and that like really upset my father. Like we edited that. That one through lots of edits getting. (laughs) But I can see it so clearly now, you know, and even now when I sit down at like a diner and they have the jam table, I have an emotional response to the jam table and my desire to like make stacks out of the jam. And I always tell people, like, I see the movie in my head before I write it. Yeah. It and that a, was how that that scene was. That, that scene was so much that way where, like, I knew, you know, like, that I, how, where, what, what I wanted the shot yeah, to be and how I wanted yeah. to come out of it. And I think that, that not that fiction doesn't interest me because it does, but that the nonfiction part of my brain or, or going yeah. to that place, like, it really rewards you, I guess, for, like, for paying attention. And, and yeah. it allows you to really, like, you know, I don't know, there are moments like that. I can't make that shit up. That that was going to be my point, I right? Can't. That it's like, you you know, when people say, like, you know, the truth is stranger than fiction or, or whatever, like, I don't know, like, you look at what happened with the story with my dad, like, yeah. that, that would... That if would, that was a movie, people would be like, there's no fucking way that yeah, he would well, commit that's, suicide at that moment. Yeah, well, that's, I remember thinking that, that it's like, like yeah, I remember thinking when like, we were working on happened. it, like, this is about as peculiar yeah. as it gets and totally real, but also, yeah, like the sort of thing, like if someone, if I, if I wrote that as fiction, yeah. I think people would probably think it was kind of contrived. I just sent that back and said, like, you had, this is a fucking plot point. Yeah. Like, you haven't, this didn't happen. And it's like, no, it's, uh, it was like my day to day, you know? So I think that, that is something that is really unique to nonfiction yeah. that interests me about it, that it's like, you really can you know, when you excavate these experiences yeah, yeah. that you had in these memories, like you get to draw connections that yeah. I think can sometimes be almost more profound than you could even possibly imagine. So when are we going to see, when are you going to start pitching these things? When are you going to start sending them out to publishers? I'm, I'm not sure right now. I'm, I'm, I'm just aiming, trying to get as much done as I can before the end of the year. Yeah. And then, you know, but right now with a lot of it, like, I just feel like with the, with the piece that I was just talking yeah. about, the, the one about is I feel like there's I'm, I feel like I'm where I was um, I'm trying to get to the part in the second half of the Invictus yeah. class you know what I mean like yeah. I feel like right now like I'm still in that part where like if you read it yeah you would be like you Throw all this you out. are <laughs> in you are too in your own head you yeah. know and I'm trying to figure out how to like get because I know that like I think from from for me at least for my process like getting to that point like that's when things get good yeah is when you can kind of move past the mechanics yeah. of, you know. I have to dump it all down on the page and then yeah, yeah. And then go you back just and go, away, go you know? okay, that's the part that's good mm-hmm. and fucking everything else goes away. It's kind of bad. Uh, well, um, I know lots of small presses that do chat books. So I whenever you get those things done, let me know. Noted. Cool. Well, thanks for coming in. This is yeah. great. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All right. So there it is. That was my conversation with Andrew. 22 years old. He's been through a lot of shit. He's a great writer. You can read his piece, The Long War. It's an Invictus Volume 3. You can find that at thegeekypress.com. 
You can also find that at Amazon. You can read it for free or you can buy the book. Don't forget, the Downtown Riders Jam is Wednesday, November 12th at 6.30. We're just about to announce our last set of authors. We have about, I think we have nine authors that night. It's going to be a great night of literature and storytelling. Afterwards, we're going to head down the street at Mass Avenue in Indianapolis, hang out and have dinner with everybody who shows up. Last time we had about half the audience came with us. So make sure to put that on your calendar. Hope you're all doing well. We'll see you again next time on the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.